Thank you for joining us. I am Zach Crum, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. The American Fisheries Society wants to honor amazing people and projects with their annual awards. There are over two dozen awards handed out to individuals and groups at the annual meeting each year, honoring excellence in fishery science, promotion of diversity, and public outreach, to name a few. There are several awards for students and young professionals, too, which often offset the cost of attending the meeting. If you know someone worthy of recognition, head to fisheries.org for more information, or search American Fisheries Society Awards. Applications and nomination packets are due by April 1st. Joining me for today's episode of the Fisheries Podcast is Nick Coleman. Nick is originally from Upper Marlboro, Maryland, and completed his bachelor's degree at Coastal Carolina University. Nick has a broad array of experience in fisheries science, gained through internships at the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center, Virginia Institute of Marine Science, and more. He is currently a master's student in Dr. Dave Secor's lab at the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science, where he is studying Atlantic sturgeon abundance in the Chesapeake Bay. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here and have an interesting discussion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm super excited looking at the, the bio you sent me about yourself, some of the awesome experiences it seems like you've been able to have so far. I'm really excited to learn some more about this. Kind of the main first question I like to ask people, and it's something that I feel like I get asked a lot, is why fish, right? <laughs> so what led you to that uh, initial obsession with, with fish and fishery science? Yeah, I feel like my experience is... um shared by many people in fishery science, as you mentioned, like I feel like fisheries people have had this passion for fish for a long time. And I'm no uh, exception for that. So when I was little, my dad used to keep aquariums and uh, my parents like to joke and say that I um, spent more time watching the fish in the aquarium than most kids did watching TV. <laughs> and uh, this actually pictures of me chasing uh, the fish around in my dad's aquariums with a, with a net my early research being conducted then. Uh, but I guess my parents saw that interest and that kind of fixation on fish and they fostered that. So I went to environmental science summer camps and um, just really my parents put me in any opportunity I could to uh, learn more about environmental science and fisheries and it kind of just snowballed from there. And, you know, by the time I was 10 or 11, I was telling people I want to be an ichthyologist. So uh, <laughs> kind of figured out what I wanted to do early, which was nice. That's awesome. That's really cool. I don't even know if I knew what the word ichthyologist meant when I was 10. So So that's really cool that you were so supported in, you know, the early stages of like growing up and just like and enjoying being around fish. Absolutely. So what was your first experience like actually working with like fisheries field work? Was that before you went on to do your bachelor's degree? Yeah. Yeah. So I volunteered at the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center in high school. And that was probably the first time I was actually like really involved in like fishery science or got a glimpse into what it would be like to be a scientist. Uh, I worked on a project called the Nearshore Project, which is essentially a summer seine survey where they pull a seine at a couple sites um, a few times a week and they catalog the species that are caught. Also do some sweeps for shrimp to look at uh, parasites. And from there, I kind of you know, got to be in a lab environment, got to talk to like actual scientists and see what their day to day was like, how they manage their time. Um, and that por- that experience was really important because I actually went on to do an internship at Smithsonian because I enjoyed the experience so much and the culture that was there. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. I bet that was amazing seeing kind of like the diversity that you can get uh, in fish and invertebrates and everything like from those sand surveys, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the amount of fish we were pulling up was crazy. I mean, I, when I grew up fishing in the Chesapeake Bay, so I kind of had a familiarity with what you could catch, but pulling that seine and seeing uh, all the different little things that were out there too was um, really eye-opening as well. Yeah. That's cool. I, I also grew up doing uh, quite a bit of fishing in the Chesapeake Bay. So what was it that you initially like started fishing for that got you excited about fishing in the Bay? Yeah, I think like most kids, I was a, a bobber and a bluegill kid. <laughs> yeah. so I was, uh, loved doing that. Then I kind of graduated to um, bass fishing. I used to watch those bass tournaments on TV all the time and would overset the hook when I was out because that's what the guys did on TV. Yeah. <laughs> Just an assortment of different things. Catfish was always fun as well because they are they're easy to catch and they put up a fight. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. So then kind of like you headed uh from there at the Smithsonian to uh your your undergrad there at Coastal Carolina, right? Correct, yeah. So how was that experience? Like what was it like going from Maryland all the way down to South Carolina? And was it different in any ways or, or how was it that transition, I guess? Yeah, well, Coastal Carolina lives up to its name. It's definitely a coastal environment. So I was very pleased to get um, the coastal experience. We were about 20 minutes from Myrtle Beach. So, you know, a lot of times I was going to the beach right after class, which was really nice. Coastal was amazing. I always say I couldn't have gone anywhere else. They have a really awesome undergraduate program that's really tailored to fostering scientific skills into their undergraduate students. They do a lot of like, uh, and it's really focusing on their undergraduates and making sure that they're going to be successful in the next stages of whatever they decide to do, especially marine science. I think it's like, I know it's one of their largest majors and one of the things that they advertise the most because it attracts so many students annually. But yeah, the research staff there is awesome. I worked on a couple of internships there, but I think the one that stood out the most was a project called Shark Cam, which is essentially using a underwater camera, which is called Shark Cam, but it's publicly accessible. And I worked with a researcher by the name of Dr. Aaron Birch, who would also go on to be my undergraduate advisor. And we used the underwater camera to assess the assemblage of fish on a hard bottom reef underneath a frying pan tower, which is a decommissioned lighthouse tower in North Carolina. That's where the camera sighted. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, and it really taught me like a lot of research skills and just how to really design and think about a project. Yeah, exactly. I bet that was really interesting. I'm sure the diversity of stuff that you saw on those those camera surveys was probably pretty cool too. Like I know that there's some really cool species right there off the coast, especially down there as you get a little further south into South Carolina. Yeah, it was really cool because the tower is actually sited at what people consider like the interface of temperate and subtropical. So you get like a really cool mix and it varies seasonally of like the fish diversity that you see. So sometimes you'll see some more tropical fish and sometimes you'll see other things. You also see a, a lot of sharks. So the camera lives up to its name. We saw a great white one time, which is really exciting. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of cool stuff. That's awesome. So I know that you have a publication out that that was published recently. So was that part of the project that uh, went into publishing that? Yeah, so I started off as an intern on that project and uh, worked on that for about two and a half semesters. And then like in my third semester, I kind of identified the association between round scad and sand tiger sharks, which is the paper that I had published. And I uh, talked to Dr. Burge and told him I would be interested in developing my own project based off of the larger shark cam project. And he was fully supportive. We sat down and kind of thought about how we could accurately analyze this relationship and describe it. 
And then for the rest of my uh, college career, I worked on that project and finally got it written up and published last spring. So that was very nice to kind of see everything um, come to fruition and finish that up. Nice. That's incredible. Congratulations on, on that first publication. I'm excited to hopefully be there one day. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, that sounds like a really cool project. So from Coastal Carolina, where you got all this awesome experience as an undergrad, where did that take you, uh, I guess, immediately after graduating? Yeah, so I when I did my, inter- I did an internship at Smithsonian Environmental Research Center while right, I was at yeah. Coastal during the summer. And um, during that internship, I got introduced to acoustic telemetry which is like, for those that don't know, it's tagging fish. It's how we monitor the fine scale habitat movement of fish. And I had to get data from a variety of scientists in the Chesapeake Bay area. One of those was actually my current advisor. So after the internship was over, I did, I was like, oh, I really like acoustic telemetry. I think it's really cool. I actually brought an acoustic receiver back to Coastal Carolina with me from my internship and put it on the tower where I was doing my shark cam research. But I reached out to um, a handful of the researchers that gave me data for that internship and expressed my interest. And uh, Dave Secor, who's my advisor now, um, was very responsive. So I kind of, after like my sophomore year, I was having, or after that, because that's when the internship was, we were having um, semi-regular conversations just about uh, acoustic telemetry and my aspirations for the future. I think by the time, like summer of my junior year, there was discussions about starting a master's with him, using acoustic telemetry to... um, look at Atlantic sturgeon. And the other funny thing was that I didn't even know Atlantic sturgeon were in the Chesapeake Bay until I did my internship at CERC. And one of the species that I was looking at was actually Atlantic sturgeon. So it kind of was really cool. I came in a full circle and um, I graduated in December of 2019 from Coastal Carolina. And then I started my master's in January of 2020 at um, University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science with Dave C. Coy. Okay, cool. So yeah, you're you're a pretty good ways then through your your master's at this point then. Yeah, yeah. I anticipate graduating in August of this summer. Nice. Okay, that's really cool. Yeah, so I saw while you were in your undergrad, you also had what seemed like a really cool experience to go to go down to Jamaica to do some research. Um, did you want to kind of share what that whole experience was like? Yeah, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, study abroad trips are really exciting, especially in that particular trip. It was an independent study. So the whole premise was that you would, we're going to stay at this lab called the Discovery Bay Marine Lab, which is on the uh, northeast coast of Jamaica. And each student, there's about 12 of us, was going to design and conduct their own independent research survey, which was a lot of fun and kind of gave me the opportunity to apply some of the skills of designing my own project that I had done with the shark cam to a different environment and on a larger scale, in a sense. But my project was interested in looking at the impact of a fish sanctuary. The northeast coast of Jamaica has been historically overfished. So a fish sanctuary has been put in place to kind of delay the recruitment of juvenile fish to the artisanal fishing pots that are there. So I was looking at the fish community in the sanctuary and comparing that to what was being caught in the pots, the size comparisons between what was observed in the sanctuary and what was observed in um, pots and also talking to fishermen to um, learn more about where they were catching their fish, uh, how often they were using their pots. The mesh size is also really important for determining or de- delaying recruitment. But uh, the coolest thing was that um, in like two and a half weeks, I did 25 dives, which was awesome. Wow. Yeah. So that's a lot, a, lot, a lot more dives than most people get to do in a, a year. Um, one of those was a night dive. And I got my advanced, now we advanced scuba certification during that trip as well. Um, but that was awesome. Nice. Was, uh, yeah. Yeah. Very, very pleased with the experience. 
Yeah, that's incredible. I feel like, yeah, study abroad trips like that, like you said, are just so impactful in such a short period of time. You can really just engage yourself in something brand new. So I bet that was really cool getting to interact with some of those local fishers in Jamaica and the whole interface there between science and commercial and recreational anglers. Yeah, yeah that was probably one, that was probably the first project that I've ever done that had like a focus on socioeconomic interaction between fisheries and the people that they're impacting. And I was really appreciative for that. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to bring that aspect into the research and something I hadn't done before, but something I really enjoyed and hope to do in the future with research. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So then that kind of led to basically from there, you know, you you get out, you graduate and you head straight in um, to UMCES where you're doing your master's. Mm -hmm. So I guess... To kind of get us into the whole Atlantic Sturgeon discussion, because I'm super excited to hear more about them. What is, I guess, like a short summary of what's going on with Atlantic Sturgeon or historically what has taken place in the Bay uh, regarding Atlantic Sturgeon? Yeah. So Atlantic Sturgeon were previously thought to be extirpated from the Chesapeake Bay due to historical overfishing in like the 1800s, 1900s, um, but also because of declines in suitable habitat. So it was once thought, my advisor likes to joke and say that he was like adamant saying, oh, no, there's no sturgeon in the bay. There's no sturgeon in the bay. But then within the last 20 years or so, sturgeon breeding populations have been rediscovered in uh, the bay, which is very exciting. So a lot of this new research is just trying to understand, or at least my research is trying to understand population size for this, you know, rediscovery of individuals. And, you know, if we can get some fine scale habitat inferences on where they're spending their time, how long they're in certain habitats in the Bay. Uh, yeah, so it's very exciting. Yeah, yeah, I bet that's crazy working with such an endangered species. I think the only experience I have was when I was a kid, I, we did a lot of fishing in the barrier islands of the eastern shore. And I remember one time seeing a dead Atlantic surgeon, I think what I think was an Atlantic surgeon, washed up and I was like, what is this dinosaur, you know? like, yeah, yeah. So it's cool like, seeing them starting to rebound a little bit from what it seems. And um, yeah, I'm sure your research is going to go a long way in helping to provide some insight into their populations. I hope so. So how are you going about kind of like collecting this data or like looking at abundances and habitat usage, I guess you said too, right? Yeah, so we're using a variety of um, acoustic methods to do this, three methodologies uh, specifically. So we have an acoustic array in the Nanticoke River, which is where this research is being taken, where this research is taking place on the eastern shore of Maryland. Actually, uh, probably not too far from Salisbury because I'm on the west western shore. But um, Yeah, so I'm actually working on the Nanticoke River for my project um, on blue catfish and snakehead diets. So, oh, very cool. Very small world. Not a lot of people, from what it seems, working, doing fish stuff in the Nanticoke. So yeah. that's really exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very cool. There's a lot of blue catfish um, in the Nanticoke River. Yeah, <laughs> there certainly is. But yeah, we're using... Uh, we have an acoustic array out there. So Maryland DNR has tagged a good amount of sturgeon in, in the Nanticoke River. So we're monitoring their movements as they come up into the Nanticoke River in the fall to spawn, which is kind of unique because in a lot of other systems, the, Nan uh, the sturgeon spawn in the spring. So this is a, kind of a unique um, spawning run. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that. In addition to acoustic telemetry, we're also using uh, acoustic imagery. So you can think of this as like a fish ultrasound. It's pretty, very similar technology, but uh, we have an acoustic camera that emits a fan of sound beams. And when those beams hit an object, they're reflected back to the camera and produce video quality like images. 
like an ultrasound. And we're using that in a fixed location to estimate abundance as a sturgeon move upstream into um, what we believe is or where we believe that they're spawning. And then we're also using mobile side skin sonar surveys, which you can think of as um, a lot of boats use these to survey the bottom, but also look for fish. And sturgeon are big enough that they um, come up well on the images. So three different acoustic methods, and we're hoping to put this together into a model that will allow us to estimate the population size. And the thought there is that the individual movements of the fish from the acoustic telemetry will give us kind of fine scale habitat, but the fixed location from the acoustic camera will give us um, population flux. And we want to use those together to uh, kind of paint a composite picture of sturgeon habitat use and abundance in the Nanakirk River. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. I, yeah, it's just such a trip for me <laughs> hearing about someone working on the Nanakirk because normally I say that and people are like, where? Where's yeah. this place? But it's a it's really, really cool system. I mean, it's just tons of bald eagles everywhere and tons of wetland and forest. It's a, it's a neat place. It's really interesting that you work with blue catfish because um the... Like I said, the camera relies on objects being a different density in order for them to be reflected back and put together an image. And blue catfish have those three spines that show up really, really good on acoustic imagery. So a lot of times Hmm. I'll just see like huge schools of blue catfish uh, on my images. Yeah. So you're seeing them move pretty tight in schools, too. Like the image that I'm thinking about in my head is underneath the 395, I think it is one of the bridges. Yeah. They love to like hunker down there. So when we were testing the camera out around that area, I would just see nothing but like blue catfish. Huh. That's crazy. Well, we're going electrofishing on Monday, so maybe I'll have to stop by that bridge. Oh, very cool. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, crazy to hear just kind of like the recovery of Atlantic sturgeon. So what do you think the future looks like if you can speculate on such a thing uh for Atlantic sturgeon in in the Chesapeake Bay? Yeah. Well I'm I'm an optimist, so I'm hoping that we will continue to um, support this endangered species and that we'll put in the proper management to do so and also make sure that the, you know, the population that we do. Well, I guess just to start by saying we're not, we believe that there's a relatively small population size of sturgeon in the Nanaka River, most likely less than 100. So um, given how small this population size is, um, how long lived these sturgeon are and how long it takes them to get to sexual maturity. I'm really hoping that we can ensure the uh, success of these rediscovered dinosaurs and make sure we're not doing anything to reduce water quality or um, anything like that that might affect their their spawning runs and their abundance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And kind of tying it in a way back to somewhere that I've been. So I saw that you worked with Noah for... I think it was last summer, right? Working with green sturgeon uh, on the Sacramento River. Yeah. Nice. Okay, cool. So I worked out there on the Sacramento for a couple of years uh, looking at steelhead. So I was really excited to see that you were also working out there on sturgeon. It's it's kind of funny. (laughs) So what was that experience like, you know, you're working with sturgeon here on the East Coast and then flying out to the West Coast, I assume, and, and working with another endangered species? Like, how did the two relate or tie back together? It's going to sound cliche, but it was very different, but also there's a lot of similarities. I mean, the systems on the East Coast compared to the West Coast are so different because they have such different geography and the hydrology is different. Like one of the things that um, stuck out to me the most was just like how fast the water moves in the uh, in the Sacramento River, at least the sections I was 
um, surveying. That was really interesting. Uh, it gets a lot deeper, at least in the Sacramento, than it does in where I'm sampling in the Nanticoke. But the the sturgeon are, are still pretty similar in you know their anadromous behaviors and how they utilize habitat and it's kind of a, a fine window as to when they're in certain systems. Um, right. But yeah, it's really it's really cool to see the difference in the systems with the similarities in the behaviors of the fish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that well, that's cool. I I imagine it's unique to have both perspectives on on those endangered species. So that's cool. We we had like a, a fike net project that we were doing to okay. look at steelhead populations, and I believe before my time they captured an adult green sturgeon and some white sturgeon as well. So okay. yeah, definitely. Yeah, ran into them from time to time, um, very occasionally, but still pretty cool species. Yeah. So what section were you working on on the Sacramento River? So we were uh, in the upper Sacramento River around Red Bluff, nor- a little bit north of that. And we went as far up as the Shasta Dam. Okay, yeah. But yeah, that's another thing that really stood out to me was like all the water diversion systems in California. Again, like talking about systems being different. That was incredible, especially when some of the fisheries folk there were telling me about all the different ways that they divert water and how they have all these they can kind of control temperature to um, optimize habitat for the salmon and the tri- the steelhead. So that was a uh, really really cool. Yeah, yeah, it is an incredibly um, managed system in yeah, that way. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty cool too. I think just looking at like you know up there at, at Shasta, you have these like towering mountains, and then yeah. it's crazy to think just how flat it is in Sacramento. That kind of just like change in uh landscape is really really staggering and yeah. i found it pretty cool out there definitely enjoyed it it's beautiful out there for sure yeah the only thing i didn't appreciate i'm not sure if you experienced this is there's these like really hot blasts of wind that essentially <laughs> happen when the heat from the valley kind of rolls into the, the the river and you just get like these like hot blasts of wind that like melt your eyes that was terrible i didn't like yeah that. <laughs> yeah people always ask about the climate differences and i'm like well here you know on the east coast you just sweat perpetually and out there it feels like you're in an oven <laughs> it's yeah. kind of how, how i compared the two i was not ready for 112 degree days yeah no it's it's crazy and that was a particularly hot summer i believe from what i remember we had some really really big triple digit days yeah oh yeah i saw a forest fire like starting while i was on the water that was crazy the first time i like yeah that and just like really the epitome of how hot it gets and how dry it is in in that area yeah i mean it's it's crazy dry out there and it's particularly exacerbated you know in in recent years the summers have just been brutal um right Right. It was crazy because I like a lot of people were, were saying when I moved there, like, oh, you know, the whole winter, it's gonna rain, it's gonna rain like crazy, and you're gonna have to work in the rain all winter long, and then both winters, you know, we only had like two rainstorms. Yeah. <laughs> so like, it was fortunate that I wasn't having to work in the rain every day, but also we really could have used the water uh, out yeah. there. Yeah. Well, yeah, that that's really cool. It's crazy that we've, you know, on either coast, we've worked in like. Yeah. Remarkably similar places. Uh, so pretty, pretty neat. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll go ahead and transfer into the final five questions that we ask each guest that comes on the show. So the first of those questions is going to be perhaps the hardest for most people to answer. Uh, but what is your favorite fish? Uh, that was the one that I had been like racking my brain about since you sent me the question. <laughs> yeah. It happens every time. People are like, I don't, how do I choose? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a hard one. Well, okay. I'll, I'll just say... 
So I'm, my dad kept aquariums a lot. So I keep aquariums a lot as well. And my favorite fish to keep was um, a Midas cichlid. I love cichlids in general. If you if you keep aquariums, they have a lot of personality and they're pretty social. And this, yeah, I think they're really cool. And plus, if you like look at their actual biology, they're native to Central America and they just have some really cool behaviors. Some of the few fish that display parental care for their um, their offspring. They're yeah. Also yeah, that's awesome. That's that's a really good pick. I don't know if we've had that one before on on the podcast. So that's really cool. So then, second question is, what is your favorite memory from your career so far? Probably, I attended the um, Coastal and Estuary Research Federation conference in 2019, so right before I graduated, and that whole conference was probably the highlight of my uh, career so far. It was like the first national conference that I went to. It was really cool to see science from across the the country and interact with other scientists. Um, I was participating in this thing called the Rising Tides Group, so I had like a cohort of other students that I was um, experiencing the conference with, and it was their first a lot of their first conferences or national conferences as well. Um, Yeah, it was just it was just a blast to to learn. Dave was there. Yeah, really nice. Yeah, that that's awesome. I I feel like the conferences can can just be such amazing experiences for people like yeah. getting to you know the stuff that you do on a daily basis getting to like communicate that with like so many other people in like a concentrated yeah. space that like yeah. love the same things is, is a really cool and unique experience absolutely so then i guess the third question uh out of our final five is uh what is your dream job and where would it be located dream job would probably be uh, as a fisheries biologist for NOAA and I would love to live in Southern Florida, so like Miami. Nice. What makes you pick uh, Miami or, or just like Southern Florida in general? I mean, there's so much water there. Like I love like scuba diving, fishing, all just being outside. And there's so many um, opportunities to do that. Not that there's in other places, but Florida just has a really cool geography and biology there. But also I'm interested in going back to get my PhD. And I think that there's a, a lot of good graduate programs in South Florida. Um, also, I do not do well in the cold. So <laughs> anytime that there is uh, pretty mild winters, milder than Maryland, I am happy to to move there. Yeah, yeah that seems like a, a perfect spot. It's been a brutal winter uh, here in Maryland. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got snow uh, a couple days ago, so I, I'm excited to hopefully get beyond that into the spring this coming week. <laughs> you and me both. Well, yeah, that sounds like an awesome spot and and a really great job. So question four. So if money was not an issue, what is one project that you'd like to work on? So if you had unlimited budget to conduct whatever (laughs) research that you, you know, you wanted to. Yeah. Ooh, you know, probably like going on one of those extensive six month research cruises and I don't know what I would do, but I would do a lot of science. I don't know exactly what I would do, but I would... <laughs> a lot of science and a lot of diving, right? <laughs> a lot of diving, a lot of science, a lot of handling fish. I'm not really sure what exactly the, the hypothesis or the the goal would be there, but definitely a lot of diving and fish. Nice, <laughs> yeah. You can't you can't go wrong with those things. So yeah. Um. All right. So last of our final five questions. Uh, if there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into each of our listeners' heads, what would it be? I think mine would be for those that are, I mean, this is applicable to anything, but especially those that are in um, the environmental sciences field, 
I would say take advantage of all the opportunities that are presented to you. That's something that I tried to really embody. And because even if you don't like something, at least you know you don't like it. And that can help tailor your research interests. And you can kind of, especially early career, like when I was trying to figure out what aspect exactly I wanted to dig into in fishery science or even just like, I mean, I'm sure you can like when you go through this progression of what do you want to do? You're like, okay, I want to be a marine scientist. And then people are like, okay, well, what kind of marine scientist? And they're like, I want to be a fishery scientist. And they're like, okay, well, what do you want to do with fishery science? Like it, it's like yeah. the doors that keep opening. So um, taking advantage of all the opportunities that are presented to you really helps you kind of tailor those experiences. And like I said, even if you don't like it, you can at least say you tried it. You know that you don't like it and you'll retain transferable skills from those experiences that will undoubtedly help you in whatever you do next. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, really, it just kind of boils down to like the fact that no experience is bad experience, exactly. I think. Because yeah, like you said, it all it can help you refine what you want to do. And it is crazy how like, it feels like you're constantly like becoming more and more specific and like focused on something. And like, it's, it's at some points, it feels like there's no turning back. And that's definitely yeah. not the case, right? But yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. So that concludes the last of our final five. So um, if our listeners would like to get in contact with you, what's going to be the best way to do that? Yeah, you can reach me at my UMC's email, which is ncoleman, C-O-L-E-M-A-N, at U-M-C-E-S dot E-D-U. Awesome. Sounds good. I'll go ahead and link that in the description so you guys can find that down in the episode description below. If you would like to get a hold of us at the Fisheries Podcast, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod, or by email at feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app, or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. You can also help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon, or by purchasing Fisheries Podcast logo merch available on Teespring. I'm Zach Crum, and thank you for listening to the 169th episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember to take advantage of every opportunity you can when starting your career in fishery science, because you never know where it will lead.